This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. And do you think Freddie would have carried one? He was so flamboyant. He might easily have taken one of these out at night and used it, do you think? I don't know about that. <laughs> Before he became famous, the fashion was very tight trousers. So there was no pockets. So obviously he has to carry money somehow. And it was always and in his key boot. home. Well, no, I, didn't. I don't think he possessed the key. <laughs> I think he always relied on other people. But he always carried his money in his boot. I that don't was think... his compartment. Yeah, Not so... such a glamorous compartment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Today I'm in Notting Hill at the showroom of 20th century jewellery antiques dealer Peter Edwards and we're joined by Freddie Mercury's sister Kashmira Balsara. Together they've amassed the most important collection of jewelled vanity cases in the world. And we wanted to be here together to take a look at them and discuss them. Forgive us, there's a little bit of traffic in the background because it's a busy morning, but it was important to be together and discuss them. These jewelry cases were more than a fashion or an artistic movement. They provided an aesthetic code for living. Indeed, we'll talk later about how they transformed the way women used and wore makeup. Kashmira, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. And Peter, thank you for hosting us. It's a pleasure. So what is it, Kashmira, that really captivated you to begin with to want to start collecting these small cases? Well, I had no idea that these cases actually existed. Um, It was really Peter who brought it to my attention. The very first one he brought it to me, it was exquisite. And I thought how unusual this particular case was. I usually just buy jewellery from him. Mm -hmm. So I did feel that it was quite expensive to have an object just to sit in a display cabinet. But there was something about it. It was so different and unusual. And it was so pretty. And all the time, I kept on getting Freddie's image in my head. And he did like beautiful things to collect as well. That's the first one. So the first one mm-hmm. oh, is just exquisite. It's um, a card case in frosted rock crystal with a lapis lazuli top. And it's sort of emotional, this, I think. The really? weeping willow. Well, it's meant to be a cherry blossom mm-hmm. tree. And immediately my head went to Japan because Freddie loved Japan. And he bought quite a few things from Japan. And I have some of the pieces he bought. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy that one because I know that if Fred had seen it, he would have bought it. 
So that's how it all started. That's how it started. Yeah. And um, so when he, he bought things from Japan, did he buy artworks or objects? Yes, I mean, it, quite a few kimonos, of which one he gave to me and my mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, well, what am I supposed to do with it? And they were vintage kimonos. Not, Beautiful. Yes. And he just said, oh, I don't know, just wear it when you're hoovering. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sort of thing you and would do. Say. You do you no, wear it? No, I've still got it, but I don't wear it for hoovering. Um, so, so, and also he bought um, various crockery and things because he just loved Japanese simplicity. And then, few months or weeks or later on, Peter would find some other cases, and that's how the interest grew really because I'd never seen anything like this before, uh, and they were also used rather than just leaving it as an ornament, when in the period they were made, ladies, who, who in the wealth, of course, um, actually used it for going out. And the, and the history that they must hold uh, is amazing. So Beauty and function. So, Peter, tell us exactly what these little cases are. Well, the, the French call them necessaires. And we call them a vanity case. And they're really uh, an object for uh, carrying all your small personal items around with you. For example, your lipstick, your mascara, your powder. And it's amazing how much fits into them. I mean, some of them even have compartments for cigarettes. There'll be a little mirror. They can be an ivory little notepad so that you can jot down your, your dances or things like that. They're quite extraordinary. And I think what fascinated me about them when I started dealing with them, they're a snapshot of a particular period in time which essentially was the 1920s. So it was just a 10-year period? Well, the, fir- the first one that I've been able to date was 1919. It was a Cartier case I had. And the story is, or the legend is, Helena Rubinstein was um, out one evening at a restaurant and was seen taking out a little box from which she took some bits and pieces and adjusted her makeup and whatever. I don't know how true that story is, but it started the whole thing and it became acceptable Therefore, if she could do it, the people could go out, they could adjust their makeup with these wonderful little cases. And I like to think that there was some very savvy jeweler there sitting in the same restaurant and thinking, I don't like that tin box that Rubenstein's pulling her makeup out of. Maybe we could do something a little bit better. Anyway, however it started, it did start, and the big firms like Cartier and Van Cleef and Bouchon, they started to make these these boxes and they became ever more elaborate, ever more beautifully designed and decorated. And that was the thing. And the wonderful thing about the boxes is you can't get the jewellery, for example. You can't sit at a table for dinner in a grand restaurant and say, God, I love your necklace. Could you take it off so I can have a look at it? You know. But these would be put on the table by the side of you and it was quite, quite acceptable that they should be passed around and you could each admire them and the workmanship and whatever. And that, that lasted through a period of about 10 years. And then, of course, we had the crash of 1929. I mean, they were ferociously expensive, these boxes. At the time, they were. Oh, they were very, very expensive. And um, it took approximately somewhere between 700 and 1,000 man-hours to make one of these boxes because there are so many different skills involved. There's the goldsmiths, the diamond mounters, the stone carvers. It's, it's a highly complex job. Throughout the 20s, they were highly fashionable. And then we had the crash of 1929. And these were expensive. And so after that, the, the interest in them diminished. And women didn't, didn't live those sort of lives anymore, did they? 
Well, things, things certainly changed because the great cosmetic houses started to produce cosmetics already packaged in nice little plastic packages once we'd had the introduction of, of, of plastics. And so there was no real need for this. It's, it's curious about these logics, they lasted for 10 years because, for example, if you relate them to the 18th century snuff boxes, you know, which every gentleman would have had one, in fact, the very grandest gentleman was supposed to have had one for every day of the year. I mean, they started at the beginning of the 18th century to come into vogue and favor, and they were still being made right up until 1820 or the 1820s. But these were done. Ten years, that was it. And the very latest one that we have, that Cash has now, the last one we ever found was designed and made by Van Cleef, or at least, well, possibly made by Van Cleef, because there were lots of outside workshops that made these pieces. So that was the last one, 1934. But in fact, uh, every one in Cash's collection was made in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, and the 34 case was the, uh, which belonged to the Princess Fossini Lassange, you may know her. Uh, that's the latest that I've ever found. Um, so I referred to earlier about the plastic. The plastics came in, and also there was the introduction of minaudier, which was. I a was much... going to ask you about that because there is a difference, isn't there, oh, to the vanity huge... case and the minaudier that people difference. know about? Yes, the, the minaudier is a much larger thing, which can take everything. It can take your coins, your loose change. I mean, the whole works. So minaudier really effectively was a beautiful jeweled little handbag, evening bag. Well, they were, but in fact, they, were not, they weren't jeweled like these were jeweled. They were much more robust. I've never seen a menordier with this kind of decoration on it. And because they were, they were actually to be even more functional. If you're going to put coins into things, it's going to get bashed around. And they did have a little handbag case that you could carry them around it. So these vanity cases were often attached by a circular ring, weren't they? Yes, a lot of them. It was a finger ring, so that you could carry them on your finger. Sometimes, they, they, if they didn't have the ring, I mean, for example, the cigarette cases and the card cases, because it wasn't just vanity cases, it was enlarged and developed to become cigarette cases, card cases. This example, the first one that Cash bought, in fact, is a card case. And you can always tell a card case, because card cases and cigarette cases look very similar. But the card cases, generally, the lid is flush with the top of the case, because you just flip the lid up, tip it over, and your card comes out. You wouldn't actually do that with cigarettes, because in those days it was loose tobacco, and so if you were to tip it up, the tobacco is going to get everywhere. So the, the cigarette cases can easily be identified because they have a proper lid with some depth on it, so that you can flip it up, and it still the cigarettes then still stand out from the case. So you can lift the cigarette out without having to tip the case up. But some of my cigarette cases, they also have an arm in it to make sure that the cigarettes stay flat. Yeah, some of them, yeah. Not, not cases like this couldn't have an arm in them. But the flat cases, if they, if they had a compartment for cigarettes, they could have like a little, a, a yes. little arm exactly, as you say, that could, could flick over and, and hold the cigarettes down. But generally, they were nearly more often than not made in this, this kind of form. So obviously there was something then, Kashmira, after your first couple that really just got to you and you kept on collecting. Yes, because each one are unique and different to their own design. Not one of my in the collection, you could say, oh, that looks like the same or they're identical. So every time Peter would bring one or two cases I just like them for their own individuality mm -hmm. so I had to as a collector mm. you like that because then you can say oh well I bought this because I like this 
about it or that, you know. And how many have you collected now? 50. Oh, no, actually, you've probably got a few more. There, there are 49 in the collection of the V&A. Yes, Casimir has very kindly given it as a promise gift to the V&A. As a promise gift in memory of her brother. And that's, that's an interesting story in itself. Cash had made a decision after she bought this one, and then she came to see us. And the Japanese. Bought another one, the Japanese Inspired, one, yeah. yes. She said, I'd like to form a collection of these. So every time I found one, I would take it to show her. And uh, there would frequently be this comment, I think my brother would have liked this. <laughs> and this went on for several occasions, and I had no idea who she was <laughs> or her relation to, to Freddie. And I remember going to her house for the very first time. Suddenly I was looking at the walls and they were all full of golden discs in, in, in <laughs> showcases and things. And so I thought, well, what is this? And then she explained. And finally I got to the bottom of it and completely, Said, completely overawed, of course. <laughs> I was thinking actually of you saying that he, he collected objects and design from Japan because these vanity cases really are... Um, a forerunner was the Japanese Inro. Is that how you pronounce it? Inro? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Inro was Japanese. The Japanese ladies carried them along. Also, also honourable, uh, a little tassel. So it was a little uh, medicine, board. a little it, medicine it, it, box. It, Yes, it had rather more things in it. I mean, it could it, it could, could, could accommodate more than the, the, the vanity cases. The vanity cases are purely makeup vehicles. So this would have herbs and little all kinds. So what you think Helena Rubinstein might have seen a Japanese in one of the jewellers and slightly taken that inspiration well, of the school Who knows? Compliance. I mean, it, I, there is undoubtedly a historical precedent for these cases, and they were just developed in tune with the aesthetic of the 1920s. But the Japanese had certainly had them before. And who knows? Rubenstein might have thought, yeah, well, I've got to put my stuff in somewhere, and I can't carry this bulky handbag around, so I'm going to have a little thing. And... That's the story. I like the story anyway, so I insist it's correct. <laughs> and do you think Freddie would have carried one? Would he have put little bits and pieces? Because he was so flamboyant, he might easily have taken one of these out at night and used it, do you think? I didn't know about that. <laughs> Before he became famous, the fashion was very tight um, trousers, so there was no pockets. So obviously he has to carry money somehow, and it was always and in his boot. Well, no, I didn't. I don't think he possessed the key. <laughs> I think he always relied on other people. But he always carried his money in his boot. So, um, so I that don't was think... his compartment. Yeah, Not so... such a glamorous compartment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. He never carried a key, so someone was always home to let yeah. him in. Yeah. In the book about this collection, A Kind of Magic, there is a little key vanity case, mm. isn't there, that yes. you could put your key. Do you have one of those yeah. in the collection? That, that's in, that's in yeah. your collection. That's in the collection, it's in mm -hmm. the V&A, and I've never seen anything like it like it before. And I, I spoke to colleagues about this, and I, I uh, had discussions with the people at the V&A when we were making arrangements for this to go there. And I was talking to Richard Edgecombe, who was the curator, was then the curator yes. of the department. And we were trying to figure out what it could possibly have been for, the key. I mean, was it symbolic? I mean, it is a little case, it's a tiny case. And the key comes out from the case, and the key is in gold. So it seemed highly improbable that it was supposed to be the key to a house. You know, because it wouldn't have lasted very long. So I just wondered whether symbolism was a key to somebody's heart. Perhaps it was a gift from an admirer or a lover. I'd never, ever seen one. It was made by Cartier. So that could have been the perfect gift for him, for the man who has everything. You yeah. have your own little to make him carry his so key. He did have a lipstick compartment, which I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
It's quite interesting, the role of women at that moment, isn't it? That how it was changing. And this really encapsulates that, that you know, beauty that had been done in private at a dressing table rather formally. Now it was kind of very cool and avant-garde to do it at the table. And I'm, I'm smoking. Smoking was a new thing for women, that they were um, smoking in public. And these little boxes really symbolise the change for women, don't they? Well, there was a huge, well, there was a huge amount of change going for women, particularly after the First World War. Um, because, you know, and we'd had emancipation. Women had been working in factories um, during the war. Even rather grand yeah. women were working in factories to help the war effort. Um, and so there was a much greater sense of freedom, um, I think, for the woman uh, in the 1920s. And, and in every respect, you know, we live in a world today where we take everything for granted. Technical developments are amazing. It must have been such an exciting and extraordinary era you know, aeroplanes were being developed, um, motor cars could travel at more than 100 miles an hour. I mean, you've got a great quote in the book, haven't you, from Gerald Santos, talking about the glamour of this period. Oh, yes, Saying, yes. Let us speak first of all of the ideal aesthetic of our age a powerful and clear aesthetic which guides us purposefully. Let us open our eyes wide to the cinema, blurred and fleeting images of things seen at high speed the beauty of precision-made machine parts, the simplicity and grandeur of smooth plane surfaces, the transatlantic liner, modern painting, aviation, syncopated music, neon signs, locomotives, the cocktail shaker. Oh, God, let's get up. Let's, let's, let's get up and have a Manhattan. I mean, it sounds great. <laughs> I mean, that really sums it up. That was the avant-garde jeweler, Gerald Sandos, in 1928. And that... I mean, what I've loved about coming to your place, Peter, over the years, probably like you, Kashmira, is seeing this period encapsulated in jewels or, in your case, in small objects. And they look so modern now. And they're talking about modernity then, but it's so modern now. Yes, exactly. For me, it's the beauty. Mm-hmm. And then it's the craftsmanship. Nobody can, nobody can spend those hours now because the cost would just outweigh the object. And for me, I like holding them and imagining which lady used it. Did she go to the Ritz with it? And, you know, you you can just imagine how things uh, were in those years. And when somebody owns a piece like that, naturally they're excited to take it out and be admired. It's great, the personal association, you know, Mm -hmm. with these things. And you try to imagine what what kind of grand or beautiful or young or old woman might have been sitting at a table... Um, in whatever restaurant and getting this out and sort of applying her makeup. And of course, they all had little mirrors in the lid so that you could, you could see what you were doing. And you could also probably look at who was over your shoulder and things like that. What's interesting, bringing up the subject of Gerard Sandoz, the grand firms, the, the, the major firms, the Cartiers, the Van Cleves mm-hmm. and so on, uh, they did make very grand boxes or they had made for them very grand boxes. But the, the group of um, jewellers... Uh, who were known as the modernists, and Sandos was one, and then there was Jean Fouquet and Raymond Templier and Paul Brandt. Um, they also wanted to get in on the action. So, because every, anybody who got any money wanted to have one of these now. You had to have it. It was the Derby Girl, you know, you just had to have it. They were not going to be drawn into doing it with these um, extraordinary decorative elements. They wanted to do something which was plainer, simpler, and uh, more in keeping with this modernist age, which um, 
amongst the modernist designers was being influenced by machinery. Machinery was the great, the great motivating um, factor here. And uh, they, they were excited about um, the purity of form of machine parts and the like. And so they made boxes, and I wanted Cash to have one. I mean, that's an example which you're, you're looking at, and I know we can't see it because we're not on screen, but um, that's an example, and that is, I think that one is by Gerard Sandoz. Um, and we have a remarkable one. We found a wonderful box by Jean Fouquet, which is simplicity itself, and that's exactly what they wanted. Uh, very geometric design. Very, very. Streamlined. And I even, mean, that could be... A modern cinema, couldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And, or or and ocean the deco, liner. Um, deco style, you see, which I'm very prone to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I, um. like, I like things that are straight. I can't stand it for pictures, mm-hmm. you know, skew it. So stuff. you've got that simplicity of design in common mm. with, with Freddie, your brother. Maybe there was something in your childhood that you saw that you both reacted to that was the simplicity of design. I think we both had eye for detail, mm-hmm. which sometimes annoys certain friends of mine. <laughs> um, and without sort of blowing my own trumpet, but we like to be perfectionists. Mm-hmm. And, that's the, and that's the only way we feel comfortable. And Freddie was like that um, with his music and his style and everything. You know, he, he couldn't just accept, oh, this will do. Um, hence his main hit of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Classic of all time, but well, always be... um, you know, always ahead of mm. time. No, nobody would have thought that back in the seventies, um, something operatic would be a hit. Mm. But he was ahead of his time, and he believed it would be to do it exactly how he wanted it to do it. Um, the the rest of the group had to just follow. So I feel that he was very much ahead of the times, but he believed in his work. Mm-hmm. and just, you know, carried on with it, but uh, always improving, improving, and always looking ahead, never thinking of the past. Did you ever go to Japan with him? No, unfortunately. He did those trips alone? Well, I think he did the tour, and then oh, yes, and then just sort of, um, after the tour, added a few weeks mm-hmm. uh, as a holiday. But they would shut the shops, the, the whole department store down for him, so that he could shop in peace without being interrupted and you've got this perfectionism in wanting to complete this collection and <laughs> i mean they're incredibly difficult to find and rare aren't yes, they and yes. you you come determined to have the best collection that there is yes and also peter will know because <laughs> i do like things perfect as i said before and he would say to me, you can't have, these are 1920s objects and you can't, it's best to leave it as it is. But the boxes and cases that I have, they were in exceptional condition anyway, mm-hmm. because that is how I do like things. And mm-hmm. so Peter wouldn't show to me anything that was sort of only... Right. I was wondering what the mm. criteria was to add something into the collection. Did it have to aesthetically please? Did it have to have the right design? In good condition, was there a set I think of, in, uh-huh. being in good condition was my priority, mm-hmm. but also at the same time, I was guided by Peter. Yes, they had to have an appeal, or, and, and I'm just opening this page here for you to see, and we can discuss it anyway. This is the box by uh, Jean Fouquet. You'll see how simple that is. Yes, it's like a sleek 
black lacquer box with a triangular shape across and you the flip it up either the end. The triangular shape is actually the lipstick, which the lipstick comes out of the side. Oh, that's so clever. And at the back, which we couldn't get the whole thing into, because he wanted a real purity of line in this piece, the finger ring is recessed into the back of the box. So you can get your fingernail out underneath it, stick your finger in, and you can hold it with the box is now sitting flat on the top of your top of your hand. And when you finish with it, then the ring just slides back into the into the finger. He wanted something absolutely pure and simple. And I said to Cash, you must have this box because it's 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 just a rare example of something that's completely at odds with the highly decorative elements which were uh, on all the other boxes. She said, yes, that was a good thing. <laughs> that was a good thing. But it, it was a lot of fun chasing these things up. Um, Where did you find them? Well, I, I would get them from other dealers and auctions. And the process, when we started, Cash was quite resolved. She gave me a budget. She said, I'm only going to spend this much on a case. And I remember I'd seen a case that was coming up at uh, an auction. Uh, it was Cartier, and it, it's become, again, back to this overused term, iconic, but it was the, it was the Panther, the mm -hmm. Panther case, which is now in the Cartier private collection. And I wanted her, I said, you've got to buy this, I mean, or we have to try and buy this. So she said, what do you think it's going to fetch? I said, I, it'll fetch in excess of £100,000. Well, no, I'm not getting into that yet. Of course, as time went on, she would say things, I wish I'd bought that case, I wish, <laughs> I wish we'd bought it. But I managed to get the mystery clock. Yes, yes. I found a mystery clock, mm -hmm. a Model A mystery clock, wow. and Cash wanted one in her collection. Peter, explain quickly what a mystery clock for people who don't know about them. Well, a mystery clock is a, is a highly complex piece of equipment, and so it's not easy to explain it quickly. And in, in fact, it's much easier if we have a visualization of this clock. But a mystery clock, in essence, is a clock that has been designed where you cannot see how the clock is working. It's sort of rock crystal, isn't well, it? Well, no, they, they don't have to be in rock crystal, mm. um, but the, the central feature will be the clock face itself, and it's the hands will be going around to indicate the time, but you can't see how that's, that's happening because it, it's, if it's in crystal, you can, you can look all the way around it, but you can't see the mechanism, and you think, how, how actually is this happening? How? Hence the mystery. Mm. The mystery. <laughs> and they were made by, uh, there would be two panels of crystal, and the hands were set into each of those panels. And the panels would have serrated edges, which came up to the, to the, to the edge of the clock. And the clock inside the frame would have a driving mechanism, which, which made the crystal panels move around. So in fact, you've got two crystal panels with, with arms, the minute hand and the hour hand embedded in the crystal panel. And the mechanism at the side is driving those crystal panels so they sit and they tell the time. Because you said never, never. I said never say never. <laughs> no, and I did find one. They weren't easy. But Because how many mystery clocks have they made? Well, the Model A, they made 13. Mm -hmm. Wow. 13 of the Model A. When was that made? Uh, well, that, that was made, made about 1920, I think. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen it now for years. But Cash wanted to have one, and that's also going to go to the V&A, which is something that they certainly haven't got. I think I'm right in saying that, yes. ultimately. Um, but it's also, without us knowing, uh, on the base, mm -hmm. there were initials, which I didn't know. Obviously, you have to accept whatever initial it came with. It was in two inverted Ks at the bottom. 
Yeah, so it was sort of appropriate. That, yes. was, that was fake. Yeah, that, that was fake. <laughs> it, it had to be. You know, as Cash, she became much more adventurous and much more courageous as she was seeing these things. And, and the collections, it's outstanding. And, and now they're gone. We couldn't do this today. They're, really? they're simply gone. Um, We're just into private collections. Yes. Thank you. They're in private collections or they're in, they're in public institutions or mm. something like that. But they're simply gone. And, and, and When uh, did you start? 2005, about then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, quite a while ago. But the price differential has become extraordinary. I mean, really extraordinary. And I sent a picture to Cash the other day because she has a beautiful box in her collection which was made by Van Cleef, which has mm -hmm. carved flowers on the surface and things like that. And I can't remember exactly what the price was, but I think it was somewhere in the order of £25,000. A very similar box sold in Paris three weeks ago for €395,000. That's extraordinary. Yeah, well, so gone. people are really appreciating They've them. disappeared. I mean, I think that may have been a one-off. I think it, I, I, I really find it hard to believe that one should pay that kind of money for what is essentially a decorative item. I mean, we talked a little earlier about this Fouquet uh, box here, and Fouquet, of course, was a great designer of modernist jewellery. A modernist jewel of his was also sold in Paris last year for a million euros. And if I tell you, I think 25 years ago, I'd been struggling to get 50,000 for it. But that was, a, that was a progression which was inevitable, in fact. I mean, I wasn't surprised to see the price at a million because it was an incredibly rare thing. There was only one in existence. And it was an extraordinary piece of design. And it actually elevated design to a fine art. You know, that's what it had become. Whereas these boxes were decorative, beautifully, beautifully made. But um, they were decorative, and I, I found it really hard that, uh, to get my head around this price. I should have got on the phone straight away and said, Cash, let's get that collection back. <laughs> um, but they're gone. It was an age, and I think that's, in some ways, that's the magic of it. You know, that's why I wanted to call the book a kind of magic, because it was a magical era. We'll never, ever see the like of that again. I mean, it was a time when everybody dressed up. I even put a picture of my dad in there wearing a top hat and tails. <laughs> and bless him, he didn't have any money. But somehow they all kind of managed, they all wanted to be part of this scene, this ongoing thing. They inspired to that sort of glamorous. Well, it was hugely glamorous. And of course, it was the jazz age and there was music coming from America. And yeah, we'll never see that like again, where people got dressed to go to dinner, you know. So did you try and find um, an example, for instance, of the, the different inspirations used, sort of like the ballet russe or the... Yes, we Cubism. did. Yeah. Yes, did I think, you want an example of each of well, the floral I, motif? Or? I think that um, the main thing was really to find them because it was, it was apparent even, even 15, 20 years ago they were beginning to disappear. I mean, there was a time that every one of the, the, the large auction houses would have had, uh, when they had their jewellery sale, there would have been three or four cases in the sale. That's simply gone. I haven't seen one at auction, a, a case of any great merit at any of the major auction houses recently. And the, curiously, the one, the, the case that made so much money a few weeks ago was uh, at a relatively minor auction house in Paris. And it's just an accident that it turns up there, I suppose. And I don't think the auctioneer had any idea of what this piece was likely to make. But, it, but for cash, it wasn't the monetary value that came into it. it. It was, she liked them because they were just beautiful objects, you know, wonderful objects. And I'm so pleased to have been part of that journey and to have been involved in it. And when they were all living with you, Kashmir, did you ever take them out to dinner? 
Did you pop a lipstick in and take it out to dinner? No, I, I wouldn't allow it. I wouldn't allow it. I said, no, you can't do That's so mean, like that. Peter. <laughs> no, but I, whenever I had entertain uh, friends at my home, naturally the topic would come or, you know, they would be interested in that. I would take them out of the display cabinet and they would be just so in awe and fascinated about, you know, things that you could carry in such a small case. Yes. Um, and the fact that they're holding history in their hands. So, so you had them in a display case, yes. and then you'll take them out. But yes. me and old Peter wouldn't let you take it to the Ritz. For well, a I think I think I'd be too scared <laughs> in case something, you know, I dropped it or or, or some or, 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 or a, you know a diamond fell out or something, you know. So, well, that's all right. You just bring it to me, and I'll have <laughs> well, I know that now. <laughs> but I think it's some. Um, you've got a lovely quote in the book as well from Vogue of um, women putting on their makeup at night, saying. Fashionable women pout. The act of reapplying one's face powder takes on a great importance. And Vogue described these like a Pandora's box, and in its modern precision evokes a machine-made object like an aeroplane part. The interior is admirably ingenious. Within a confined area like a jigsaw puzzle, and with much economy of space, there are precise partitions following the classical definition of order with a capital O where there's a place for everything and everything in its place. That period, so 20s to 30s, because I've done a lot of research in the Vogue archives and talking about how women use them and, and what they did at the time, Vogue forever were encouraging women to smoke. I mean, it was always, you have to have a Cartier diamond-tipped cigarette holder or break one up to put it into your little box and how many cigarettes to take out at night to fit into the box. I mean, very specific instructions for um, what women were going to use it for. Well, being a non-smoker, I don't really encourage people to smoke, <laughs> especially for women. Um, so I just, I'm just happy to collect the boxes. Um, it was such a different era. Everyone yeah. thought it was cool and fine, didn't they? And I think the amount, as, as this is saying, talking about the confined area to fit things in, I mean, there was so much in it, wasn't there? There was... A cigarette holder matches, maybe with striker light on the inside of the lid. We had one with pins in it, didn't we? It was the pearl one, wasn't it? Yeah, the... it was an earlier one. Yeah. This was, yes, this was quite an early one. So I suppose if you wanted a, your dress was coming in. The strap came off or something. Mm -hmm. It was a pins made out of gold and mm -hmm. the top was pearl. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, and the puff powder was made out of ostrich feathers. I've still, it's still there. Does it look used? Yeah, I think it does, isn't it? The, the ostrich, oh. yeah. And also you can, just, see, you I, can I, smell I, it as well. Can you? Mm, off That's the powder. So mm. I think the actual powder's still there. I just got this out to show you, and I know we can't see this because this is this is verbal, but here, this is a Cartier case. This is a little gold box with a geometric pattern. It, it's a plaque on the top, geometric pattern, and there's a plaque on the top set with jade and black enamel and little diamonds. But I show it as an example of a case where somebody has taken this part of the interior out, still got the lipstick, so they could put their cigarettes there, and probably they'd have their matches in there. And did the jewellers actually make the lipsticks at the no. time to fit in there? Because uh, they had to be very small and narrow, didn't they? Yes, I, I, I remember somebody telling me that, that Fortnum and Masons were selling them until, until relatively recently, 
you know, you could get you could get the lipsticks. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not quite sure whether the jewelers got the lipsticks, but I think the houses like Cartier Bank who could have organised it and got lipsticks for them or whatever. Mm. But I made sure made the compartment would fit a slender lipstick that was yes. on the market yes. at the time. And I guess, in a way, they, the, the, what these cases led to normal old um, powder compacts that people use. Yeah. And then yeah. just used yeah. it. Well, that came to... in the 1930s. And mm. I said a little bit earlier, with the advent of, of, of plastics, it became so easy. So when you went to the store or uh, wherever it would be to get your makeup, it would already come. It's now packaged, it's pre-packaged, you know, you didn't buy loose makeup or, or, or loose powder or whatever. So that was another thing, apart from the, the great crash of 1929, which hastened the demise of these, of these luxury objects. Because you would have thought in the 1930s, we were still, you know, after the recovery, as the recovery was coming from the crash of 29, the great jewelry houses were still flourishing. They were making wonderful jewelry, but they'd abandoned these. And that again is back to the, the beginning where this it just encapsulates one very, very short period of time, the 1920s. And I'm, I'm so delighted that Cash has got them because we wouldn't do it now. And also they might have spread to the winds and nobody would have seen them and now everyone can see them in the v which is fantastic. Well, yes, I felt that it was important. I could have left it to my family, but then... What would they have done? They, they might have just sold them, or it would have all parts, and you know. And I felt that it's much nicer to keep it as a collection. And where could I leave that? And Vienna was the obvious choice. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic. The Bollinger Gallery, where they are, is just one of the best in the world. So it's amazing. It's a, it's a great gallery, and they've done a wonderful job in displaying the cases. You know, they it's a purpose-built display case, and the lighting is beautiful, and um, it's exciting. It excites me. I mean, I, I love going there and, and, and feeling there as part of this. Do you have a favourite out of all your boxes? To say no would be incorrect. Okay. But I, I do love them all for their individuality. But it has to be the calling card one, the very first one. The first one that made because you think it, of Freddie. Yes, yes. Because I know that he would have loved that because the colour was right, the daintiness about it. What, the frosted rock crystal? He, well, and also the lapis lazuli, the oh, blue. Did he like blue? No, he, I think he... He liked yellow, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I, I prefer blue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it would have fitted into his colour scheme. Yes, yes. Because he, like most people, you like beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And I know that he would have had the eye for that, and, mm -hmm. and especially for the whole collection, because it was so different. Did you have a favourite, Peter? I like the case that she's got, the first case. The, the first one is your favourite, too. It, it just, it mm. really, really appealed to me. The beauty almost lies in its simplicity. It's just, I, I think it's it's supposed to be a Japanese willow or something like that, with the black enamel and little diamonds dropping off the enamel. But And it's set off so beautifully against the frosted crystal background. And curiously, uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with... Well, I know you've been reading about the firm of Lacroche, but uh, a lot of people will talk about a piece and they say it's by Lacroche. And it's a common misapprehension because Lacroche didn't make jewellery. Lacroche didn't even design jewellery. Lacroche were great retailers with an eye for selling something else. So we, we actually, there's a maker's mark in it, and I can't remember what it is now because it's several years now since I've seen it. 
Um, so the likelihood is that one of the, the great workshops, the, the owner of one of the great workshops in Paris would have gone to Lacroche and presented their latest wares. And Lacroche would have said, well, we love this, so we'll buy this one, we'll buy that one. And I mention this story because another very similar case um, came up at auction about three or four years ago in Paris, um, also retailed by Lacroche, also with the same um, weeping willow um, on, on, the, on the front of it, but it was set into amber, mm -hmm. and it just didn't work. It simply didn't work. I mean, the beauty about this particular box, it's, it's how the tree stands out against the pale gray frosted crystal background. It's a truly stunning box. It has a sort of sense of movement, doesn't it? As well, I said, it's emotional. You yes, it does. feel that sort of romance. It's great. Of yeah. it kind of flowing down. And yeah, I, like the, I, I like the concept of the, the lady who owned it, that if she went visiting, that she would take, like, take her box out. Because I don't know if it would have had a pouch to protect it. Oh, yes, it would have. Yeah. Um, there would have been a suede, there would probably be a suede So pouch. she would have taken it. But I think it's, it's one way to hand out your, uh, hand out exactly. your visiting cards. Can you imagine how drop, to make drop yes. to make a really yeah. fresh to put it give you my card, card to the butler, you know. And I think that's the favourite, yes. it's my favourite. And yeah. we've, we've got some beauties in that collection, but... Um, and um, do you have a tip for anyone starting a collection? What would you advise them? Don't collect vanity cases, <laughs> they're all gone now. If you, have the, if you have the wealth, just go with your instinct and have a good jeweller. <laughs> and do you think buy the best examples you can get? Or, because you said you'd wait to get one that's in really good condition. I think that's just me. Mm -hmm. But obviously, as I said, Peter guided me very well that I have to accept a certain, um, say if the mirror's not quite right or it's got a little crack in it or just to leave it uh, because that that gives you the more of the authenticity of right. it. So I'm learning from that. That was quite a triumph for me, actually, <laughs> because Cash is a very demanding client. And I had to encourage really? her. I would have to say to her from time to time, I said, look, just accept, you know, the mirror's gone a bit mouldy. I mean, I'm not going to change it because that's the mirror. And uh, and she did, she did, yes, within limits, she did. Um, and but, I guess you have to find something you're passionate about to, in the first place, that you're passionate in the pursuit of these objects. Well, as I said, I didn't even know that they existed in the world. So I don't know what else I would like to collect until I see it. I don't know. Um, so it's a case of um, being brought to you or, or finding something that, you know, if you see it somewhere and you think, oh, I'd like to own that, how do I go about getting it? Mm -hmm. um, but you've got to like it because there's no point spending all that money and then you're not keen on it. No, exactly. And who do you think made the finest examples, Peter? There were several firms. There was... Um... Lavarbe was a very good firm that made boxes in, in Paris. Uh, the firm of Renault made boxes, but probably the most prolific was the company called Strauss, Allard and Mayer. Mm -hmm. um, and I see them, and they don't sign them, but of course they have their goldsmith's mark inside mm -hmm. them, S.A. and M. They made a lot of cases. I, I mean, that era has also gone. I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of, of workshops there must have been in Paris at the time. Uh, because Paris was the epicenter of the luxury trade. I mean, it had been for 200 years. After the First World War, when 
France arguably suffered more than any other country because not only the dreadful numbers of, of dead and injured people that came out of that war, but the complete, complete demolition of the French economy. I mean, all the great battles were on French soil, factories were destroyed, towns were destroyed, agricultural land was churned up, and the French government, oh, and they'd invested heavily in Russian bonds in 1917, which turned out to be catastrophic. So the French government thought, what can we do to, to regenerate France? And of course, they turned to the, to the luxury industry because France had been preeminent since the days of Louis XIV in producing luxury, luxury goods. Um, and so they, the workshops were encouraged, designers were encouraged, there were exhibitions, of course, culminating in the Great Exhibition of 1925, which had, it had originally been intended to take place before the First World War, but the war, the war interrupted all that. And uh, so these workshops in Paris were, and they produced amazing, amazing things. And they would go to Cartier uh, and Van Cleef uh, and say, look, this is, this is the current range. And Cartier would say, we'll have that, and we'll have that, and have that. And then they would be sent to the Cartier engravers to, to have Cartier's signatures and numbers put into it. Because, to the best of my knowledge, Cartier themselves weren't manufacturing these. Well, they were quite, I guess the engineering was so complicated to make these hinges and mechanisms. It's hugely complicated. Yes. Um, and you've got lacquering and enameling and um, stone carving. Because they weren't made in, they weren't made in England. And um, in the United States, which of course was the other great market for these, the American retailers would import them from Paris. That's where they, that's where they were made. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one so, example of, of one of my cases where they couldn't repair it, if you remember. It had got a little watch at one end. Yeah. And it wasn't working. Well, of course, I wanted it to work. <laughs> and you, Peter, took it to your usual um, jeweler. And um, he said, it's impossible to repair it. They don't have the tools that small oh, to repair it. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's another form of the case. It's the only one that has got a watch at one end. So the lady who's got it, she would position it so she can see the time. Which well, was a very new thing for women then too, wasn't yeah. it? Because it was taken for granted they didn't need to know the time mm. before. And suddenly they had things to do, places to go, and they needed to either have a little watch in a mm. vanity case or begin to wear these diamond set cocktail watches. Mm. Yeah. For me, it's been a fabulous journey. I've really enjoyed it, you know, um, to find somebody um, with Cash's enthusiasm and her wherewithal to, to be able to, to buy these things because even from the time we started, they were beginning, the prices were beginning to creep up. I've even had one or two people approach me, say they'd like to buy the entire collection. Mm. They say, we'll just buy it, name the price, we'll buy it. But one of the joys for me is it's going to go to the nation. Yes. Know? And that, that over the years, well, I mean... Well, not just the nation, the world, because the well, world well, goes through the v Gallery. Don't yes, I think, I think Richard Edgecombe, uh, <laughs> curator, told, told me once, I think half a million people a year go through the jewellery gallery alone. Mm. That's fantastic. So if this just had been dispersed, this collection, that would have been it, you know, mm -hmm. gone to some private house where it would come up uh, for auction some or other. But here's an opportunity for a lot of people to be able to go and have a look at it and appreciate it and uh, just see 
something that was unique and truly representative of its of its time. Kashmira, is it complete if some if this Cartier Panther suddenly came up at auction, would you be tempted? I could be. <laughs> it all depends. So never say never. Never say never. Kashmira, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Your your collection and and how you how you created it it's very inspirational well thank it's with, with very much help from peter and peter and peter's expertise thank you for sharing that too <laughs> thank you for listening for this and other episodes of if jewels could talk please go to our website carolwilton.com slash podcasts Please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts and we'd love a rating and a comment. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I've brought together two women who have something in common. European sustainability editor of British Vogue, Dana Thomas, who is the author of Fashionopolis and the writer of Luca Guagianino's new film, The Shoemaker of Dreams. We'll be joined by Maria Sole Ferragamo, Salvatore Ferragamo's granddaughter. And we'll be talking about the film and sustainability in materials that feature in both fashion and jewellery. It's a really interesting talk. Please join me then. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, Graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>